0: as a Cry. crown him Lord Amen. Have a seat for a second.
1: So kids, I want your attention very quickly. I'm going to stay right here. I'm not even going to take my guitar off. This won't take but for just a second. I have a few questions for you. Raise your hand if you're you're looking at me. If you can hear me. You can hear me? You're good? Kids? Alright. Awesome. Alright. Now, let me ask you this first question. How many of you would like it, would like it, if your brother or your sister threw you in a hole and went and told your mom and dad that you were dead? That's right, good. Nobody raise their hands or your parents would have some fixing to do, right? So nobody would like that, right? That would stink. That would not be cool. How many of you would like it If the same brother or sister that threw you in a hole and told your mom and dad that you were dead sold you into slavery, how many of you would like that? Nobody would like that, right? Well, I agree. How many of you would like it if you spent years sold into slavery and then you were falsely accused by a pretty important person's wife And they said bad things about you that were not true. How many of you would like that? I'm seeing a pattern here, right? We don't like to be treated badly, do we? Especially when it's not really fair. I mean, we do bad things. We make mistakes. We say things we shouldn't sometimes. We do things we shouldn't sometimes. We get in trouble. We have to ask for forgiveness. Those things happen. But sometimes some people just make up things or they just do things because they're wicked or evil and just wrong. And we don't like that, right? They don't like that. I bring enough problems into my own life by by me being me. I don't want to have problems in my life because somebody else is being somebody else, right? So this happens. This is a real story. How many of you have ever heard the name Joseph from the Bible? Joseph? Yeah? Joseph? All of these things happened to Joseph, right? But here's what's neat about Joseph. Joseph was a guy that loved God. Joseph was a young man, a boy, who loved his brothers, was good to them, who loved his dad, was good to him. You know, Joseph was a, was, a, was a good man, you know, according to worldly standards. But these things happened to Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him, so they threw him in a pit and told, his, told their daddy that he was dead, told him that an that a, that a animal ate him, tore him to pieces, I mean, that's awful. That's awful. If, I, if, if somebody came to me and said that of one of my children, I would be heartbroken and very sad. So it's really, really a hard thing, right? Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery. He ends up being lied about by a very important man's wife. And, these, and, then he, and then he goes to prison, right? How many of you would like to go to prison for something you didn't do? Nobody, right? That's crazy. That's nonsense. But here's what's interesting about that story, okay? These things are very difficult to hear, right? And that all happened during the time where where, where, what Genesis writes about, what Moses writes about in the Genesis account. Early, early on, thousands and thousands of years ago. But here's what Joseph has to say. This is the man that all this happened to, and he has something to say about it. You know what he said? He said this. He looked at his brother's, And he said to his brothers, he said, brothers, you didn't do this to me. God did this to me. Now that's crazy. All these bad things happen to Joseph. And how does Joseph respond? He says, brothers, you didn't do this to me. God did this to me. How do we make sense of that? Is that a little confusing to you? I know it has been to me or was to me very confusing. Let me explain to you what's happening here. A lot of times we think bad things happen. And we think the reason bad things happen are because they happen because of bad people. Somebody gets shot because a bad person shot somebody. Somebody stole something because a bad person stole it. And this is true. Matter of fact, the Bible says that no one's good. Christians are only good because they have the goodness of Jesus. But left to ourselves, we're not good. We're not righteous, right? So Joseph says, you didn't do this to me. God did this to me. And then he says something else. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, hey, you meant this for evil, and then God had to take lemons and make lemonade. God had to take this horrible thing that God couldn't stop, and he had to fix it, make it pretty. That's not at all what he said, because that's not who God is. He said, you meant something bad, but God meant something good. So there's two things happening here. There's brothers who meant evil, and there's God who meant something good. But who is the one who did it? God. That's what Joseph says. That's what the Bible says. Now, let me explain something to you very quickly. I need you to hear this, okay? So, find my notes. Okay. Wherever they might be. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So listen to this. Let me just share a few scriptures with you, and I'll be done, okay? Moses, who wrote Genesis, also wrote Deuteronomy, okay? He says this, See now that I, this is God speaking, even I, and he, Moses recording what God said, See now that I, even I, and he, and and there is no God beside me. All right, kids, you looking at me? What does that mean? There's no God beside me? God's the only one. There's one God, Right? We got that. That's awesome. There's no god beside me. I kill and I make alive. So who's responsible for life and death? Ultimately, God. Right? God is. He's the author of our life and our death. He's responsible for all these things. Listen to this. The Bible also says the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings death to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes Poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So God does all of these things. So that's kind of tough to understand, right? God does these things. Listen, Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord and there is no one besides me. There is no other God. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. You know what another word for that is? Evil. Now it's not evil in the sense that God is a sinner, but it's evil in the sense that Bad things do happen because there is sin in this world. But God is in control of all of these things. But here's what you need to understand. Very clearly, the Bible tells us that what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant God did for good. Here's how we understand this. The Bible also says that God is light and there is no darkness in him. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell within you. So here's, here's how we understand this. Kids, you looking at me? Give me 30 more seconds. Here's how you need to understand this. God did bring about hard things in Joseph's life. And people do evil, bad things as well. But you have to understand, when we do bad things, it comes from a broken, fallen humanity. We hurt people sometimes. And when we do things that are harmful to people, oftentimes we mean Harm. And I'm not talking about maybe getting disciplined by your mommy and daddy, but I mean evil, bad things. 9/11, flying a plane into a plane, flying a plane into a building and killing thousands of people. That's evil. That's bad. But it's not because God couldn't stop it. But God brings things to pass. But here's what you need to know about God: There's no darkness in Him. He's only light. And not only is in is He in control of all the good, but He's in control of all the bad. And he's good no matter what bad he providentially brings to pass. All right? Now, for parents, that's a weight for children, and I don't expect that they understand everything. But here's what you can do with this. You can take that concept and you can utilize the week to start unpacking those truths for those children because this is important for them to have a theological framework and worldview so that they can rightly square up to the hard and, uh, and, and, and tragic things in life. So take this as an opportunity to build on that for the week. So anyway, let's pray. Father, I thank you for these little ones. Lord, I know that only you can communicate these deep truths to any heart, whether adult or child. And I pray that you would do that. Lord, I pray that you would take some of these things that I've said. Lord, you would cause it to connect at a a, a heart and a mental level for them. Lord, so that they don't grow up like so many do with a bad theology and an unbiblical worldview. And they shake their fist at God because they see hard things or bad things happening. Lord, and they say, how could a good God do these hard things? things? How could he let bad things happen? Lord, I pray that you would grant us all perspective that we need to rightly understand the things that come to pass in this world, starting with our own nature, starting with our own brokenness, starting with our own evilness, starting with our own problems, that we have no right or no reason to ever shake our fist at God as the as the creature. Lord, may we never bring a charge as a creature against the creator. Lord, may we never bring a charge against you as the clay, as though we have some kind of authority over the potter lord you have made us the way you want to make us for your purposes and for your glory lord i pray that you would give us grateful hearts lord i pray that you would give us the perspective that we need to rightly think on you and therefore worship you in jesus name amen let's stand for a couple more songs if you will
0: mystery, in the dawning of the King, He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. To Christ, to condescend, to took on flesh to ransom us. Come, be the wondrous mastery, be the perfect son of.
1: out with i mercy my god we introduced that one to you last week want to keep playing that so you can be more familiar with it
0: Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul. live here sin would reduce me to utter despair but through thy free goodness my spirit revived and he that first made me still keeps me alive thy mercy is more than a match for my heart which wonders to feel its own hardness depart Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I found. In the covenant love of thy crucified Son All praise to the Spirit Whose whisper divine Seals mercy and pardon In righteousness mine All praise to the Spirit Whose whisper divine Seals mercy and pardon In righteousness mine
1: Activate us with your word today, Lord, give us focus, give us attentiveness, allegiance, loyalties, all those things. Show us how precious your word is, show us how precious truth is, and show us the benefit of that, and show us the the grace there is within that we get to receive your word, apply your word, be washed by your word, Lord. um, Show us great and mighty things, in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated.
2: Turn with me and your Bible to uh, John chapter 15. Is, is my mic on? Okay. Sorry, I forgot to test it when I came in this morning. John 15. While well, you're turning there, uh, Alan, thank you and the band for bringing that song to us. It's a, a favorite of mine that I hadn't heard in a while, so uh, it's good to, good to be reminded of it and, and the wonderful truths that are in that song. It's good to be back and worship with you again. We were out of town last weekend visiting my family, and we worshiped with them um, online with their church, and uh, so it was a, a good good time spent with uh, with family, but we certainly missed being with y'all, so it's good to be back. All right, so John chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 16 4, that section right there covers kind of the same theme, so we're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, So I'm going to read it in its entirety. John 15, starting verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that, was, that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you, you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to god these things they will do to you, they will do because they have not known the father or me but these things i have spoken to you so that when th- their hour comes you may remember that i told you of them these things i do not say i did not say to you at the beginning because i was with you let's pray like i come before you this morning to a, a text that's so applicable to us in this day, in this age, in this context. So pray, I pray, Father, that you would grant us courage, grant us courage as you did the apostles to testify to your grace and to your mercy, that you would grant clarity to us as your church, just to the depths of your riches, of the riches of your mercy and your grace. And that, Father, that would overflow with bold mercy and grace to a world that hates you. Father, would you take these breadcrumbs that I'm about to offer this morning and would you multiply them and make much of your Son, Jesus, through them? It's in Christ's name that I pray, Amen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with my application and end with my application. Um, I don't have a funny story or intro or anything. I just d- didn't didn't have one this morning, so I'm just gonna go. You know, both barrels this morning. <laughs> we're gonna start there. Um, but I want to ask you: Do it, does your relationship with God? Does it have an expulsive power to the world around you? And do you feel the pressure and do you feel the tension of a world that is against God because of that relationship? So let me ask you that again. Does your relationship with the Lord through Christ, does it have an expulsive power in the context in the in with the people that are around you such that you feel the pressure? feel the tension of a world that is against God. Now, I asked that, and we'll, we'll, we're going to kind of dig into the nuts and bolts of that, the, the specifics, as Alan likes to say, the mechanics um, in, in this text. But that's kind of the main thing that Jesus assumes here, or, or this, is what he, this is what he's aiming after. Okay, remember last week, Alan preached about the, the multi... How do I phrase this? The multidimensional relationship that the believer has with Christ. Okay, what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? And, and Alan unpacked that, and it's multiple dimensions, that there is a love-friendship relationship, but there's also a king-priest you know, dimension there. It's multifaceted. It is very powerful. It is a strong relationship, and it is one that Jesus intends will overcome the world, in a sense. And that's what he moves to next. So Jesus has spent time with the apostles, talking to them, giving them encouragement, speaking about abiding in him, their relationship with him, all of these things. And then he shifts almost suddenly in verse 18, the world will hate you, if the world hates you. And that is not a, well, it might, it is a definite. You're going to experience this. You're going to see this. This will come upon you when I leave. His point in saying this, 16.1, is I say these things to you to keep you from stumbling. The pressures are going to be on you and there's going to be the temptation for you to fall, to stumble. This whole upper room discussion is putting rebar in their spines so that when he leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, all of these things become, you know, start to click and come together and they're strengthened in their faith faith and this is what you see happening in Acts as 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 the New Testament church moves forward and essentially changes the world but this is what Jesus aims at is that the relationship that the believer has with Christ is expulsive in the sense that it naturally will overflow into its relationship with other people and there's going to be tension there and so we're going we're gonna to dive into that this morning. That's what we're going to look at. So the first thing that Jesus says is, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So it's important as we get into this, let's define two of the key terms that are in here. The f- excuse me, the first term is the world, and the second term is hate. Now, it's interesting. There's sort of, a, as you read through Scripture, there's this unholy trinity that, that appears Um, the world the flesh and the devil and we speak often I think you know about them or you'll hear that you know sometimes alluded to if you go to 1st John chapter 3 I think John does a good job of kind of in a sense in his own unique way of writing he captures both of those or all three of those themes in that one chapter the world the flesh and the devil Um, but I think the world for most of us is sort of a gray area Um, you know the flesh I think is pretty obvious if you're a Christian even if you're a new Christian dealing with the inner struggle of the old self the new self you know the the Holy Spirit present the old man there's battle that takes place there Um, you know that's a that's a real present reality we can feel that we can touch that that's that's a little clearer the devil Okay, all right. You know, not necessarily the you know, the Halloween, you know, red-faced, you know, horns and pitchfork kind of thing, okay? But we can get a sense of that. We can speak of that. We can speak of the the uh spiritual powers and you know, you can you can read about that in scripture and that's a little clear, you know, that there is a dark spiritual force that is present, you know, in in the world at large and in history, okay? But the world, as the world is spoken about, that's more gray. That's not oftentimes as clear. And even as John writes about this in his gospel, he moves in and out of sort of multiple definitions of, of the world. It's much more fluid in a sense. And so one way we can think of the world, we can think of it as the natural entropy, or the natural breaking down of the created order. Okay. And so ever since the fall, the, the the world as a natural creation is falling apart, okay? And you see this with, uh, you know, with hurricanes, with storms, with, y- you know, d- diseases. Basically, anything you label 2020, pretty much, that's, you know, pretty close to it, um, you know. So, so the natural breaking down of the created order, you know, you're getting sick. Well, there, there's a, you know, that's, a, that's an aspect of the world that's just from the natural breaking down of uh, uh, of of the created order. It's an implication of the fall of man uh, that was related to it you know in a sense, uh, or uh collateral damage, I guess you know you you would say, but that's not what John is speaking of here that's not what Jesus is referring to. Um, so let me just put a l- let me put an umbrella definition on on the world here we can get into some specifics but let me just put an umbrella definition i think this is helpful this is my own definition so if you don't like it you know that's my fault um but i think this is helpful the world we can define the world as in general when two or more sinful people get together around one or more purposes so when two or more sinful people get together around one or more purposes okay um think of it this way when when uh when Cain killed Abel, okay, and he was branded, basically, and sent out into the wilderness, what did he do? He established a city. Okay, so I'm going I'm to establish a city. And what came out of that city? I mean, this is going to establish a city. We're going to gather people together, and we're going to come up with a way to do life together, basically. And what is the, the Genesis tells us that what came out of that? We have murder becoming prevalent. Revenge comes out of that as well. And then you also have the, se- the distortion of sexuality, that's that's stemming from this. Okay, think also of uh, the Tower of Babel, right? People coming together and saying, "Hey, we're going to gather together and we're going to make a great name for ourselves. But and, w- and we're we're gonna we're gonna make much of ourselves." And so here's where you have the world basically. When people who bear a broken image of their Creator decide to get together and do life together, basically. And what happens is sin taints that entire systemic project. We're going to get together. We're going to come up with systems and plans and things about how to do life together, void of the grace and mercy of God. And it falls apart. Okay, so I think this is a good just overall umbrella picture of what does it mean when Jesus says the world. Okay, now it's easy for us to think the world, well, that's the them out there. You know, that's the, that, that's the terrible they that we often refer to. Well, that's them That's them. Now it's it shouldn't escape us that who is Jesus talking about when he says the world? In this context, he's talking about the Jews that are rejecting him. Right? It's the Jews who are going to bring him to the point of crucifixion to say crucify him, crucify him. Right? It's those unbelieving Jews that Jesus is basically saying this is the world, this is the world. It should remind us that even the most well-meaning religious system is against God if it doesn't know him through Jesus. But also it's the unbelieving Gentiles, right? At the crucifixion, who's present and who's complicit in that? It's the Jewish system, right? It's the Jews that are unbelieving, but it's also the Gentiles. It's the Romans who are complicit in that. And so all of those come together to basically capture the world. You know? So, so it's, it's when people gather together and they do life together, I don't know, um, void of the grace and mercy of God through the cross. Okay, is that helpful? Help kind of give us a, a context. Okay. The second definition is hate. Okay, a lot of discussion about hate, you no, know, right now. Um, but let me give you just a again, blanket definition I think that is helpful. Hate would be the overflow of someone's heart when his or her core values are assaulted the overflow of someone's heart when his or her core values are assaulted. Right? Th- we can link this with the things that we hold most valuable. You know, I'm not talking about possessions. I'm going to talk core identities that define who we are. When those things are assaulted, there's a visceral response that comes out of that. You know, I love kids. I love children. And to hear stories about trafficking of children it causes a visceral response in me if you know me you know i'm pretty even killed you know i don't get upset about a lot of things but hearing those stories it just there's something inside me that's like that is that is terribly wrong when i hear stories about you know my kids that somebody was mean to them you know i don't know the context you know but but i hear some of that and there's just something in me that's just like you don't mess with my kid you know it, it, it's because I hold that dear and I hold that valuable, right? But then in the world, you get a you have a misappropriation of values that are based upon something other than a holy God who's merciful and just and gracious and who's created us in His image and who He intends that we be His image bearers, and we're broken and we're restored through the to that image bearing capacity through Christ. You have a world that mounds its values on something completely different, or who wants to borrow from some of those good things, but place it on a completely different foundation. Right now, that's self-exaltation. That's me and myself, or my group, whatever group this is. I'm associated with this group, and when you assault that group, you've assaulted me, you've assaulted my identity, you've assaulted my core values. And so hate comes out of that. I think this definition is helpful because the, the world oftentimes, well, w- w- we can get into trouble because the world looks at Christians and goes, well, you're not allowed to, to hate. If there's a response that comes from you, well, that's wrong. But even Scripture calls us to hate what is evil and to love what is good. So it gets down to those core values are those core values for Christians, they are based upon God and who He is, who He's created us to be, and what He's done for us in Christ, right? And so when those things, and everything touches those, everything touches those, so when those values are assaulted, there's a response that comes comes out. Now, there's a good response, there's a right response, and there's a wrong response. And we'll get to that in a minute because the question becomes, what does Jesus tell his disciples to do when the world hates them? But we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, but I think that's important for us to understand that God calls us to hate what is evil and to love what is good because God loves what is good, himself defining what is good, and he hates what is evil. So when the world, back to these, just kind of summing up these two definitions, the world and hate, when the world, which puts supreme value on itself, self-exaltation, rather than on the God who is gracious and merciful, it will viciously hate whatever he stands for. And so the question is, why is the world then against Jesus? Because this is what Jesus says, the world hates me, it's going to hate you. Why is it against Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 21 it says, All these things they will do, all of this reaction, all of this hate that they're going to do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. And then verse 3 of uh, chapter 16 it says, But these things they will do, they'll cast you out of the synagogue. You'll be expelled from the religious system, the religious structure. You'll be killed. Because they do not know the Father or me. They don't know God. John captures this well later in his, in, in his uh, first epistle. John 3, 1, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. He's talking to Christians. This is the love that God has on us, that we would be called children of God, that we would be called out of darkness into light. We would be called out of the world as Jesus says here in John 15, we call out of the world into his kingdom. And John says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Do you follow what John's saying? He's saying that the gracious love of God through the Son, that's what's drawn us out of the world. It's that love and that grace which the world doesn't know. The world doesn't know it. It doesn't know it. It's not able to appropriate it. Scripture refers elsewhere to this as blindness. The world can't see its own error. So why is the world against Jesus? It's because it does not know the Father through the Son. does not know, in a real experiential sense, the grace and mercy that God's given to us through Jesus. And so then why does the world hate Christianity, hate the Christian? Well, Logically, it follows, as Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Further, though, Christ has called us out of the world. Right? That's what he, he says, that if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world? Now, it's interesting, he doesn't say, you know, you kind of began that way. You began not of the world. And you've always been that way. So there's sort of this complete divide that would sort of give you a sense of, well, I'm better than you. I'm better than the world. No, what does he say? He says, I chose you out of the world. You were in darkness. You were, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, you, you were, uh, and I'm drawing a blank, Ephesians 2, one, where he says, um, you were dead in your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air right so this, this was you were complicit with the world you know that, that was that was your life you were darkness you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel you were set you, you were totally removed from the covenantal promises of God and God says I will chose you out of the world put my sovereign grace on you opened your eyes to see the value of Jesus called you to myself changed your heart There's a new creation that's happened there. And so the world wants to reclaim what used to be it. You used to belong to the world. Now it wants to reclaim that. But we should note here, we should take a minute, step back and ask the question because our life should look different from the world because we were called out of the world. So Christian, does your life look different than the world around you? Does it look different now I'm not saying you know are you the Paul washer you know in your social circle but are there fruits of grace that are present on you the branch that rub against the people that you're around that are not Christians they look at you with sort of a peculiarity when you talk when you act when you maybe don't do necessarily the things that they do or you speak up against some of those things your life as a Christian should look different than the world because you were called out of the world. If it doesn't look different, it begs the question, are you actually called out of the world? Have you been called Called out out of the world? And we also shouldn't be surprised by this, that the world hates Christianity. You think about it as you read through the New Testament and what do you find? You find that the cultural pressures against, is totally stacked against the apostles and against the New Testament church. From the Jewish religious establishment to the rest of the secular world. You know, the Hellenization and all that's happening within secular culture, it's against Christianity. The Jews who don't want anything to do with Rome and yet find a common ally in the fact that Rome wants to squish Christianity, they're like, hey, let's get together and let's crush this, you know, let's crush this thing that's going on. And so both are against Christianity, and you see this in Acts, right? As the uh, as as the early Christians are being thrown in prison, Paul and Silas. You find this, you know, with with the early Christians being thrown in prison. Um, think of Paul when Paul writes to the uh, uh, writes to the Corinthians twice in First Corinthians four twelve and Second Corinthians four nine. He writes and he says that. The apostles, he's speaking to the Corinthians, he said the apostles are being reviled by the surrounding cultural system. That there's pressures that's being put on them. They're basically being made spectacles for the name of Jesus. Further, Paul writes to Timothy as Timothy's the pastor at Ephesus. And he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all who desire to abide in Christ will suffer. The point is we don't need to seek out persecution. It's not, hey, go out and throw your Bible on somebody's doorstep and try and get pr- try and pick a fight with somebody. Paul's, you know, Paul's e- emphasis and the emphasis I think that Jesus is making is that if you're following Christ, you're abiding in him, and that relationship is growing, then it's going to have an expulsive power that's going to be frictional with the world around you, and that that persecution will find you. You don't need to go seek it out. It's going to find you if you're following Christ. And that hatred from the world can take different forms, right? You know, we think of it in in the most extreme sense, martyrdom in a foreign country. That's pretty clear, right? We get that. We understand that, okay? Maybe it's someone viciously yelling at you from an abortion clinic because of what you're saying who otherwise might be very cordial to you in a grocery store if you were just to bump into them. Maybe it's pressure from your manager to abide by new policies and new rules that you know are very unbiblical. Say, no, no, this, this is wrong. Maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's that you experience a setback in life and you're looking and you're going, Lord, what are you teaching me? Is this is there an idol here that I've been clinging on to that you've removed from my life? It's a good thing, but I've I've clinged to it too hard, and it's it's I've I've suffered, glory your name, and you've removed this from, from me and it's painful and it's tough. But Lord, I'm willing to submit to you and I'm willing to I, I'm I'm willing to let you be exalted in my weakness. And you speak about that and you talk about that with people in the world and they look at you and go, you are crazy. Pull yourself up by your bootstra- b- bootstraps. Go after whatever this is. Maybe it's a relationship. No, you're too good for that. Go indulge yourself in, whatever in this relationship over here, in these other relationships. Maybe it's financial setback. You know, just put your nose to the grindstone. You know, you're going to get back on top of things. You know, pick whatever cultural cliche you want to throw in there, right? This is the American pull yourself up by your bootstraps okay? There's more subtle pressures that the world can express itself in hate than physical violence, and I think that's crucial for us to see. It can be looking at using Jesus as a means for personal gain. Being in a church and saying, I want to be a part of a church because it's advantageous to me, financially. Ten years ago, I'd say that was part and parcel to being, you know, a Christian in the Bible Belt. Today, not so much. Tomorrow, not so much less. Maybe it's socially advantageous. Maybe it's romantically advantageous for some. So, well, I could get connected up with a good guy or a good girl to use Jesus is a means of personal gain. And see, hatred from the world can come from this, can, can span the spectrum from overt persecution to subtle suicide. It's important we recognize that. So, why do they hate Christians? Why does the world hate Christians? Because they hated Christ. and Because Christ calls Christians out of the world. And when Christians live a life that's following Jesus, it naturally has an expulsive power that rubs against the very world it came out of. So why is this hatred inexcusable? Why can't God, he's already paid for everything in Jesus, why can't, why, why, is, why does Jesus make so much of a big deal about this? Because Christ is at pains argue this with the disciples. He doesn't want them to stubble, so stumble so the reason for the hatred must be solidified in their minds and in their hearts. So why is this hatred inexcusable? Look at the look at the if then clause in verse 22 and 24. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them. Again, he's speaking to the world and this world in context is the Jews who've gathered together and they've created the system in a sense that's now against Christ and against God's purposes. They don't know the God who's given them grace and mercy. He said, if I'd not come and spoken to them, that's his word, he'd not spoken to them, they would, have, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for them, their sin. And then verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Notice it's the works, or it's the word, the word that he's spoken, and the word, excuse me, (laughs) it's the word and the works that testify that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. That's what he's speaking of. If I hadn't spoken to them the things that I'd spoken, I hadn't done the things that I had done. It says they would have no sin. Now let's be careful, okay? Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is Jesus saying they would be sinless? No. No, he's not saying that. What he is saying is they would not be guilty of the specific sin of rejecting the very Messiah that the God they profess to believe in and follow has said is coming. That they've rejected Jesus who was prophesied in the Old Testament. But by their rejecting him, they're also rejecting God himself. And they're proving then that they don't truly know the God they profess to serve. And so, therefore, the Jews, as the appointed representatives of God, remember God had said in the Old Testament, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Abraham, so I'm going to make a name for you. You're going to be my family. You're going to be my representatives amongst the nations Basically, you're going to show the people of the world what it looks like to be my people. And how did the Jews do with that? Failed miserably. Failed miserably. Proof positive. It takes more than just a good effort and a good, you know, good rules in order to glorify God and represent Him rightly. It takes the shed blood of, of the Son of God on the cross to buy us back from sin and from death, giving of the Holy Spirit and giving us a new nature. That's a new covenant right there. So the Jews, as the appointed representatives of God, failed miserably because they rejected the very Messiah that God had sent them. They stand in greater condemnation because that now, because they're now misrepresenting God to the Gentiles. Think of it this way: if if uh, if a ch- if a student in a classroom disobeys a general classroom rule, right? They're they're in trouble. But that's very very different. Than a, class re- or than, a, than a class representative who goes to a state competition and acts just very immorally and dishonors the school publicly. Very, very different. And so here you've got the, the Jews who are supposed to represent God to the world and can't, and the, and the only way they can do that is through the shed blood of Christ who's come, and now they're rejecting him. They're rejecting the Messiah whom God had sent. And so this was true today that when Christ is rejected, when the gospel is given, it's proof positive that oftentimes those who say they believe in God and they may even say they believe in Jesus and they hear the genuine gospel and there's that visceral response to it. They don't really know the God of grace. They've fabricated a God of some other form that's more palatable to them than the God who actually is. God, and Jesus said, this is why this hatred is so inexcusable. The very thing that they, They're rejecting the very, very thing that they need and therefore demonstrating just the depth of their own lostness, their own brokenness, and their own sin. And so what does Jesus say? This, the, the overall in this section, he says the world hates you, the world hates you. Here is why. Here is why. And so now what does he, what does he say to do? What are we to do in the face of worldly hatred? Verse 26 and 27, give us the command. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Who's he testifying to? He's testifying to the apostles and then also to anyone who believes in Christ through their witness on and on down through the ages. It is the spirit that brings confirmation of the work of the son to the individual who believes. And then verse 27 says, And you will testify also. Speaking to the apostles initially, you will testify also. And so the function of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to an individual who believes, is to testify to the individual who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that opens the blind eyes, that changes the heart, that draws the individual, draws you out of the world into the kingdom of his light. And then you testify. And then you speak of the glories of Christ to others. Y- you see how this cycle works. I mean, this is how we, if you're a Christian, this is how you were saved, right? Somebody shared the gospel with you. You know, maybe it was in a great, wonderful context, very much unlike the way I'm kind of doing here. I don't know. and you and you heard it and it, you know, you came down front and you, You know, maybe you prayed, and I mean, I don't know, you know, whatever that looked like, but the Lord saved you, and you said, I don't know, I was blind, and now I see. You know, I was lost, now I'm found. and And then you spoke, right? Maybe somebody bumbled and fumbled through talking to you about the gospel, and you like, they, you know, somehow in the midst of all that, God used those words to convey who Jesus really was, and you believed, and you had faith. And there was new life that came. I mean, this is what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. And then the task is share that same message, you know? I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of fascinated by ancestry a little bit, you know? I mean, it's very much a back burner thing for me. It's not like I spend evenings, you know, digging into ancestry, ancestry. but I think it's interesting, you know? Um, but I think it would be awesome if there was a way to link gospel connections. Go back 500 years if you knew your ancestry back 500 years, you know, could you trace Christianity in your family? Maybe you could. Maybe you couldn't. Maybe there's a gap, right? You know, maybe, maybe 200 years ago, you know, Christianity, Christi- you know, there, there's, there's strong Christian faith, strong stories, strong testimonies, and then the gospel's lost. You know, one generation moves away, steps away from the gospel. And then by the grace of God, two, maybe three generations later, somebody comes to faith. And then you start to see it grow again. I think that would just be amazing to look at and to see. I I think we would all be very, very much humbled by seeing the way the Lord has worked in our family lineage in that manner. That's totally not in my notes, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've kind of I've stepped to the side. Um, but Jesus' emphasis is testify. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, all right, now go overthrow the government. Right? I want you to march on Rome and I want you to take them over. Peter, that sword I told you to put away, pick it back up again and now go. He doesn't say, okay, now everybody go cause a riot in the street. You know, let's do this hostile takeover. Of everything. He says testify. So why does Jesus say testify? I have to believe that Jesus knows that testifying of Christ, of him, is the superior response. So let me give you just two reasons I think this is a superior response to anything else. And especially anything else you would find in the world. One, it demonstrates true faith in God's redemptive means. Namely, saving people through the message of the gospel. That it is the very gospel that saves people. And that we really trust that. Right? That we really trust that God is at work in the world and that he is doing something. And that he is doing something good. That we trust that what God has said he's doing. He's going to do and he's going to do it through the means that he's declared. Namely, the sharing of the gospel. The spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we, truly, that we truly have faith in that. And that when that happens, even if it's to our detriment and to our death, God gets the glory in it. And then two, it recognizes that the true and ne- deepest need of the world is faith in Jesus and all other benefits flow from that. You notice that Jesus isn't specifically addressing cultural issues. And throughout his ministry, he rarely does. I mean, he even points to slavery here. He says a slave is not greater than his master. He doesn't, he doesn't attack slavery as a system What's the deeper underlying root need? It's the changed heart. It's the gospel. And I'm not going to dive into that, but I'm going to just kind of link that to our conversation in tonight's men's night. You know, as we look further into us as image bearers of God and how God models our, the dynamic of our relationships and equal but separate in himself and then calls, uh, calls us to follow that. So there's a footnote for, for tonight. But Jesus doesn't address specific cultural issues. You know, when he's quizzed about marriage, you know, whose wife uh, or, or uh, uh, whose wife is she in the in the eschaton? Can't remember the scripture verse, but you know, Jesus is asked this you know, by Pharisees. And he, he doesn't he doesn't address polygamy. He doesn't address, you know, he goes right back to the root. Of it. He doesn't address specific cultural issues. It's not what he came for. The greatest need of, huma- of humanity is to know God through the shed blood of Christ. And everything else flows out of that. Everything else flows out of that. You think about this. If you were to go into a country you know, where people don't have water. They don't have clean water to drink. And you hand them a gallon of water and you say, Now I've fixed it. Right? You've just you've supplied clean water for somebody for a short duration. Right? What they need is a well. What they need is clean water that is sustaining for them. And so we look at systems, we look at things, and we look at the world, we should recognize that involvement of things like the government, is only going to go so far because you can't legislate morality. New life in Christ is the well that people need. The truest and deepest need of the world is faith in Christ, and all other benefits flow from that. Now, let me footnote this because it's easy to then turn around and say, well, we shouldn't talk about cultural issues. We shouldn't, you know just share the romans road with people and that's it or we can't talk about the you know we can't talk about the blessings of faith in Christ and knowing God to a lost world until we talk about the gospel but that's not true that where the benefits and the, and the good things that are true and present in culture where they exist that we should protect them linking that to the image of God that we all bear, but then not failing to point that to the gospel and how those fruits are intricately connected to the root of Christ. Are you following me? That we can encourage and we can foster good things in society. We can can seek to protect those where we see that they exist and they exalt and they honor man as an image bearer of God and say, yes, this is good. Let's keep this. Yes, let's keep this, but we can't fail to draw the connection to why we keep it. And that we should also foster godly uh, godly virtue individually and culturally. It's so easy to speak of godly virtues in just simple pragmatic terms. And there are pragmatic benefits to a lot of those things. Think of the family right we can talk a lot and I hear a lot of articles talk about the practical benefits you know, of a of a safe loving family right and i mean i have to define this you know of, uh, you know but but it's you know a safe loving family we we hear about that we can talk about the pra- you know practical benefits of, of that but ultimately any goodness that comes out of that is the fact that god has designed it and we are his image bearers. And there's benefits from it. But there's so much that can be tied to the gospel in that. So in conversations, bringing those things up. But then again, right? Here's where the world can become frustrated and become hatred. Because you can talk about oftentimes the practical benefits, but when you draw it back to the root and you mention God and you mention Jesus and you start talking about the gospel, now it's offensive. It's offensive. The family's great as long as it serves my exaltation. But the minute that it serves somebody else, oh, no. And what you've just done is you've just laid the axe to the tree of my core values, which is myself. And now hatred comes out. And so we should testify to Christ both directly and speaking of the gospel, sharing him, f- f- just, you know, figuring out how to speak gospel in the lives of other people, especially as it's connected with those benefits, with those fruits of God's grace and his mercy given to us through Jesus. We testify, testifying of Christ means drawing a direct line between the fruit, the fruit needs of an individual to the root need for salvation in Christ. Let me say that one more time. Testifying of Christ means drawing a direct line between the fruit needs of an individual to the root needs of salvation in Jesus. So let me close and just mention a few points of application because what, what do we do with this? Let me ask you, just look inwardly. How are you experiencing the world's hatred? And again, I mean, I'm not asking you know, is, is somebody sticking a gun to your head? But how are you experiencing the world's hatred in, in, that, in that blanket sense? Feeling the pressures of the world. Maybe the temptation to stumble. Right? That's what Jesus wants to guard against here with the apostles. And, of course, he's speaking to the apostles. John's remembering this years later. And then he's pinning it through the power of the Holy Spirit. who's brought these things to his remembrance. And so John writes this in the intention that those who read it would also be encouraged not to stumble, which is Us. Are you feeling the pressures of the world? Are you feeling tempted to stumble because of those pressures? Are you seeing where the gospel is needed locally and globally? Taking action to speak where the Lord gives you opportunity to? It does beg the question too, are you really living a gospel life opposite that of the world? Or are you friends with the world? That's a hard question. I'll be honest there are some days I'll look at that and go Austin you've been more friends with the world today that scripture is very clear a friend of the world is an enemy of God does not know God does not know God who drew him out of the world if you're experiencing if you're experiencing that the world's hatred be encouraged the world hated Christ first so you're in good company You're in good company. At the end of the age when Christ returns, remember whose company you're going to be in. You'll be in His company. Not the world's company. And that's another crucial thing too, I think, is that our hope is not in any sort of a revolution, any sort of a system. You know, I mean, we recognize that, you know, at least right now, Perhaps democracy is probably the best of the bad ideas we got. You know? Is that we need Christ. Our hope is, ultimate hope is in that Christ returns and he sets everything right. You know, we, we exalt virtue and we exalt things that make for peace in the world and found that upon Jesus, but also humbly recognizing that even if we make our best efforts to, to form peace, to make world peace. When we get together. Void of the grace of God. Shed through the. Uh, void of the grace of God. Through Jesus. We're still going to screw it up. And I mean you point to one. Civilization in the history of the world. That got it dead right.
0: None.
2: Now that's not to be Debbie Downer. And you know. But that's the truth. That just further proves. That we need Christ. That the world needs Jesus. And that our ultimate hope is in His return and His restoration of all things. As Alan's fond of saying oftentimes, we are sojourners in this world. So be encouraged. Take courage that God is at work. And that where you see the pressures and you see the tectonic plates of culture shifting And things are very uncomfortable for Christians. When that occurs. This is the historical pattern that God is in control of. Of sifting the church. And drawing out. Separating and saying. These are mine. These over here I don't know them. They don't know me. So take courage when you see that. That God is at work trust in the gospel it's the means by which one those who are those who persecute are brought to salvation or their unbelief uh, and their sin of rebellion is made all the more evident paul's probably the classic example right the persecution that he administered was part of the very means by which he was brought to brokenness and to christ and through his ministry, through God working through his ministry, changed so much of the Gentile world. I mean, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So trust in the gospel. It's the means by which those who persecute are brought to salvation, where their unbelief and sin of rebellion is made all the more evident. Seek to think more clearly about the gospel and how you can apply it in the spheres of influence God has given you. It's not just as simple as, well, here's a track. Or let's walk you through the Roman road. Or pray this particular prayer. You know, I think over the last 20 years or so, one of the things that the Western church has learned is that there's no necessarily canned delivery of the gospel that ensures somebody gets saved. And you know, we can't just figure out a way to make people into Christians. That it comes through the gospel, but that gospel is oftentimes shared in the midst of struggle and conflict, when the believer is very ill prepared with a set response. And so, and so, so we must think clearly about the gospel and its implications in the context and in the things that are going around us. What does the gospel say? What, is, what does the gospel say about equality? What does the gospel say about glory? What does the gospel say about individualism? What does the gospel say? What are the implications on this? Because it touches all of these things. And thinking about these and even reading about these, you know, things from good pastors and theologians who have done work and thought on it, stretching our minds. Helps condition us to have those conversations with people. So think, seek to think more clearly about the gospel and how you can apply it in the spheres of influence that God has given you. And then, lastly, and I'll quote Paul from Ephesians four, where Paul asks that he might speak boldly, as he ought to speak. That there is a boldness that we should pray for. I know, anybody in here can use some more boldness. We're not all Matt Brock, you know love you brother (laughs) no we all could use boldness in our witness for Christ in the places where he's planted us so let me pray for us I hope this has been encouraging Um, let me pray for us Father thank you for your word I thank you for how it challenges me it shows me my own weaknesses it even shows me where (laughs) if I'm honest Lord I'm more of a coward, but I'm, I'm shored up, Father, and I'm I'm rattled because I know that your word says that cowards have no place in the kingdom of God. And so, Father, we shouldn't just sit on the sidelines. We shouldn't be satisfied to just watch the world change around us and draw us a Christian bubble that's comfortable with rules and with, you know. I don't know, whatever protective barriers we can put up that isolates us from the world that's against you. Father, you have called us out into the w- of the world to go back into the world that we might shine the light of the glory of Christ. And so, Father, would you grant us boldness that we would, in the midst of hatred, that we would testify to the glory of Christ even it is even if it requires much loss from us that at the end of the day jesus would be exalted in our lives that the world would see with to s- would look at us and say yeah jesus is that person's greatest treasure i don't understand it i don't know why there's a peculiarity there that i don't quite understand but i know without a doubt Jesus is this person's greatest treasure. Because I think for so many of us, if we were to ask that question of people around us, Christ might not actually be the answer. That's an unsettling feeling for me because I have that slight fear in some of my relationships. So, Father, grant us boldness, grant us courage that this next week we would seek to make much of you wherever and whenever. We have the opportunity. And Father, we have much opportunity. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. I give you a benediction from Paul to the Ephesians. Now may the utterance be given to you in the opening of your mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel in a darkened world. You're dismissed.